Hi, this is Dr. Farah Kamengar. We're here with the Future of Dermatology podcast. Today, I am joined again by Chandler Johnson, one of our wonderful medical students. I'm so happy to have you here, Chandler. So happy to be with you here on the podcast again. I'm really excited for this episode. I think it's going to be really, really fun. We're going to do a year in review of the pop culture articles and magazine statements that you've given commentary on. So it's really going to be exciting for us to just chat about the fun, hot topics that's really been at the top of everyone's mind this year. And one of the ones that I wanted to jump into first was a Huffington Post article that you wrote on, and that's about the yellow pillow. We were talking offline about this, and I told you, Dr. Farah, that my dad is a yellow pillow offender. So let's really break down what that means. Someone's probably like, what is a yellow pillow? And like, what does that mean to a dermatologist? Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so excited to talk talk about these because we're going to basically review everything we've kind of done in 2023, a fun pop culture um, article pieces that I've written on. And we decided to kind of talk about those just because they're fun, right? (laughs) Like the, the, the oh. yellow pillow. So I was super excited we started with that. Um, and then, of course, we'll end up with all of the wonderful things with it with SF Derm for the year, too. But the yellow pillow got a lot of attention. So this all started with like some guy posted on Twitter or X, I just say X now, about his yellow pillow that he just introduced to his girlfriend. Like he felt comfortable enough in the relationship, introduced the yellow pillow, like some dude, some random dude. It went totally viral, like over 4 million people saw the yellow pillow, commented on the yellow pillow. <laughs> so then all these news um, channels like took it up. Huffington Post was one of them. And they, I talked to them about this. So the yellow pillow problem seems to be like very prevalent. Uh, seems to be a male dominant problem, but <laughs> I think it's kind of like there's tips in there for everyone. So it's basically these pillows that have just been around for years have never been washed. I think for dudes, it's probably just just sweat and life and all of that. But I think for women, though, like another thing we talked about with the article that was interesting is like a lot of the skincare, like everyone's doing all the skincare and the oils and the this and that and the slugging. And then you go to bed and all that just gets like into your pillow and then mold and dust mites and all this stuff just grow, starts growing and then you might not wash it at a frequent enough. Right. So that was a really fun one to talk about because it just seems like so obvious. So we chatted about um, things like just washing it, just wash your pillow every few months. I don't know if everybody does that. Um, or you can get pillow covers, all that, all that good stuff. But that was a fun one. That was a fun one. I'm glad we're leading off with that. And it was funny, Chandler, because you were saying you read that like outside of us even talking about it. Like, so it just, it's, it's one of those topics that gets, gets your attention. Yeah. I sent it to my dad and it's so funny because I was, I was reading responses to and people are like, you know what, I'll get the best sleep of my life on that pillow, but I wake up and I have like a new blemish or I'm sneezing. So it's good to like keep an eye out for really what the impact of the yellow pillow can be. (laughs) So moving on, you already mentioned, you know, sort of the trend in skincare and going to sleep and having a night routine and the products that you're using. You also wrote in um, 2190 about hydrating cleansers. Tell us a little bit about that. I know cleansers and choosing the right one for you is a really hot topic. So that that kind of conversation is like really, really fun to talk about on these kinds of formats and like in a fun journal article. But we get asked it 
by every single patient in clinic every day. And it's like less fun. And by that, I mean, like someone could be coming in for something entirely different, right? Or like skincare or, I mean, sorry, not skincare, like skin check and be skin cancer screening, for example. But at the end of it, it was like, oh, what should I do on my face? <laughs> Which really is like, I, I can't blame people for doing that because you're coming to the dermatologist and every YouTube clip you see online says, ask your dermatologist. But it's, it's a funny one. We always talk about with dermatologists, like, how do you schedule that with a patient? Because it really is not this like whole add on to an entire visit. Because you can have a, an entire article like this. That's basically um, like it takes multiple minutes to read. Right. But so we went in there and just kind of talked about basically the good cleansers are ones that are not stripping your skin, uh, not fragranced, and ideally have some even moisturizing ingredients in them. That might even help to minimize the skin barrier kind of trauma that happens with like harsh cleansers. And then of course, right after cleansing, when it moisturizes. So we talked about that too. And then, so in the, in the article, actually, we, there's like lots of different um, brands listed. The cleanser, moisturizer, what should I do on my face is like a classic that everybody asks their dermatologist, no matter what they come in for. Even if it's like their child's wart at the end of the visit, also, what should I do on my face? I've definitely done that before too. And I'm just curious since we're on the topic, you know, in terms of hydrating um, cleansers, what about people with oilier combination skin? Do they still need a hydrating cleanser? That's true. If you do have like super oily skin, you might not need it as much. Um, I would say like if you're oily skin, but we have your acne products like retinoids or benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, anything that's drying your skin, you might still benefit from the hydrating cleanser. But if you're kind of super oily, you might not like the, because the sometimes with the cleanser, even when it comes out, it just kind of feels kind of almost moisturizing, the ones that are very hydrating. So you might not like that feel on the skin. So if you have enough oil production, I don't need it. That's really good to know. Thank you for the tip too for myself. <laughs> um, okay. And then on the topic of, you know, choosing the right treatment for a common concern be it, you know, the products for your face. What about products for something like um, keratosis pilaris? I feel like that's something that I've even seen quite a bit on my clinical rotations in third year of med school from family medicine to dermatology. I feel like I've seen a patient almost every day, you know, noticing like, what is this on the back of my arm? So tell us a little bit about what you talked about in that Women's Health article. Yeah, so keratosis pilaris is a really interesting one. And I have it too. And I got to admit, like I've done everything in the world. That thing is not going away. It's basically just a genetic change of how your follicles are shaped. So there's nothing we can really do to change that. Uh, it's also such a minor thing. Like it's like so whatever. And it's so common that I think like we should just kind of not care about it necessarily. But then we all do. So it's a really, really funny one. And everybody with keratosis pilaris still comes to the clinic and still asks me. And I say kind of the similar things like treat it gently. It's almost almost kind of like a subset of eczema almost. So you don't want to be exfoliating too harshly with um, like scrubs or anything like that. Moisturize. You can maybe use some chemical exfoliants like retinoid, salicylic acid, glycolic acid. But don't go in there too heavy duty and don't, you know. Pick the spots, anything like that. But so I mentioned that to our patients, and they're so like, "Oh yeah, that's kind of what I've been told before." But it's like they'll still bring it up because I think it's still something that um, is is really, really just a nuisance to everybody. So anybody who comes up with a cure for keratosis pilaris, 
will do really, really well. But there's no way to really get rid of it. I've even tried hair, hair removal for patients, and it's not really, it, it, it's not necessarily a problem with the hair follicle. So even getting rid of the follicle doesn't do a whole lot for it. So really just, we still have just moisturize really well. You can use retinoids, moisturizers, all of the above. That's really interesting. I had no idea about um, the follicle shape having a role in that um, presentation. So that's really cool to hear that. Um, so moving on to other skin findings, you also had another article in Women's Health um, Magazine all about um, different skin rashes. It was um, 26 pictures of skin rashes and how to identify them according to doctors. So there's several different rashes. I'm sure that, you know, being a clinician, you have probably like your repeat offender rashes some that you see more often than others. So tell me a little bit more about the premise of this article and how it helps inform the patient. So I think, yeah, on the, especially rashes on the face, of course, we see that a lot. And the important thing is there are, of course, things like seborrheic dermatitis, psoriasis, which which will just kind of come up on their own, a little bit genetic predisposition. But then there's a lot of stuff that's kind of done to the face in some people with um, the skin regimes, regimens that they're doing, topical therapies, different type of fads that might be going on. So a lot of times you might see kind of self-induced facial dermatitis, contact dermatitis, irritant dermatitis. So that's probably one of the top things that we see. Um, there are so much stuff out there to put on your skin. It's really hard to tease out. And so much of it has, has messaging like natural, hypoallergenic, but you don't really know what's in there. And even natural products, you can develop a contact allergy too. Not necessarily the product is bad, but you've just developed an allergy to it. So on the face, if you kind of see like a nondescript kind of rash, like a psoriasis or seborrheic dermatitis is a little bit more obvious and you can kind of right off the bat diagnose it. Something a little bit more um, just kind of diffuse that you would definitely want to rule out contact dermatitis. I would put that top. And so there's just so much out there um, as far as like just products. It's kind of impossible to find all of them. Patch testing is helpful. When we do patch contact derm testing, we can also test to the specific products that you're that a person might be using. Um, but those are really, really top ones. And not necessarily products on the face too. Sometimes if you have like eyelid dermatitis, it could be an allergy to maybe like your nail polish or nail polish remover or different kind of gel products on the nails. So all sorts of things that kind of irritate the skin because it's just thinner skin too. So allergens get in more easily. Wow, that's great. It sounds like patch testing has such utility in sussing out what these causative agents are for the different skin findings. So I'm happy that we have that tool in the toolbox that you can offer to patients. How often do you end up um, referring patients with different rashes for patch testing? Is that something that you commonly do in your practice? Yeah, yeah, I definitely would. I mean, a lot of times if it's kind of mild the first time, you might just try treating it and see if it goes away. Maybe it was just mild irritant. Um, but if it kind of just keeps recurring or is like moderate to severe in its severity, it's 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 really good to catch allergens earlier on. I almost think you can't really overpatch. It's annoying for patients to go through the patch system to come in on like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, put a bunch of little patches on their back, can't shower from the Monday to the Wednesday. So it's it's a little bit of a thing to go through, but you want to find out earlier than later and stop being exposed to your allergen. Because you can basically become kind of more chronically um, inflamed with the dermatitis even after you remove the allergen. So 
one of those things you don't want to leave too long before before doing the testing. So interesting. Thanks for telling me a little bit more about that. So I want to transition to talking about something kind of similar um, in the sense that it might be hard to find the root cause, especially if you're a lay person. But facial swelling is something that a lot of people, including myself, suffer from at times. I mean, admittedly, I'm a face sleeper and especially on my rotations where I would get up really early in the morning, like word to internal medicine, <laughs> I would wake up with like really puffy eyes, my face a little bit swollen after having, a, you know, not as much sleep. But you um, wrote in Women's Health again about facial swelling, super interesting article about 11 um, potential underlying reasons for that happening. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, facial swelling happens to everyone and they notice them. They're like, what's going on? We talked in the article about obviously the serious things. Like if there's if half of your face is really swollen and really red, you want to make sure you don't have a cellulitis or like something going on with a tooth or abscess or sinusitis, things like that. But the common kind of what you mentioned where life happens and you just feel puffier at times, um, that can definitely happen with like dehydration, exhaustion, you you probably notice in times where you just kind of run down and you just notice that high in, high salt intake foods can sometimes do it too. Stressful times can do it. We know um, if you take a lot of steroids or like you have something like Cushing syndrome, this, the high level of corticosteroids will make you a little bit swollen. Your own internal steroids, if you're just really, really stressed out, can cause kind of similar findings. So stress is also probably high when you're on your rotations. Third year, for sure, uh, for sure. As you're just running around, so you, you, that, that that the facial swelling increases visceral fat. In the yeah, that increased cortisol is is not great. You kind of need it to get through the day, but it's it's not great for the body long term. Yeah, thank you for the insights for that. So we did talk about you know there being a common question: of what um, hydrating cleanser do I need? There's another article that you wrote about makeup with SPF. I feel like SPF in skincare is starting to be really, really talked about. Um, a lot of my friends all use SPF either in their makeup or just like on a daily basis, thankfully. So tell us a little bit more about your recommendations for makeup with SPF because I'm sure it comes up a lot. Yeah, that comes up a lot now too. I think SPF has made it into kind of all the products and into like common, you know, pop culture which is great so everyone is kind of protecting from the sun i think it's now understood uv rays are a carcinogen and obviously they're going to age you as well so the best thing you can do anti-aging wise is just block from the sun so you don't lose your own collagen um so on top of that if you're doing makeup you might as well put some spf in there as well i think makeup companies have caught on to that it's definitely good for marketing as well. So you can kind of sell multiple products. You can sell the one with SPF or without, and then different times you can use them different ones. And then sometimes I actually kind of recommend even to my male patients, things like powder with SPF. And then they go, what is that? Like that makeup? <laughs> but there's just different also ways of delivering SPF. Like powder is actually kind of a good way to reapply. Like if you're out there and you've already put on a layer of cream, male or female, you just you might not want to put on more cream on top of that. So powders work really, really well. That's like a very obvious sort of makeup slash SPF that doesn't necessarily even have to have tint to it and, and be more like in the makeup profile. You just have S, you know, SPF um, powders out there. Then there are just like your clear makeups. So I think like under eye concealers with SPF are amazing because usually people are trying to cover up pigmentation. Pigmentation has happened from sun exposure. So you're covering it up anyways, 
why don't you like stop the damage at that point and not get more pigmentation on top of it? So there's these little niche areas where sun was the reason that caused the thing that you're trying to cover up. So it just, it definitely makes sense to put SPF in makeup. That's what, that's still one of those like kind of common things that patients will ask for. So I think it's good to have good answers for them and then good product recommendations because they're going to go out there and look for it. I also think it's really important for dermatologists to engage in these articles that are put out there because if we don't, then they kind of, the reporters go down the list and engage other types of doctors who just might not know the skin as well as we do. So I think it's important to just get those, get that information out there to patients so they can use the safer products. Yeah, that is such a great point. And I feel like safety in dermatology is so, so important. And this ties in perfectly to the next topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which is skin tags. And I was reading up on the article that you wrote in Single Care, and I was interested to hear about some of the DIY methods of removing skin tags as opposed to what would be sort of standard practice. So I'd love to get your take on that. Yep. This article was also hilarious. I gotta admit, it was like a fun one to do. And it's also very serious because 60% of Americans are affected by skin tags. So very, very important thing to acknowledge. But it's it's one of those things, it's kind of like keratosis pilaris. It's so really not a big deal. We don't have to do anything with them, but people hate them. Probably even maybe easier than keratosis pilaris because you can just cut it off and you're done with it. So of course, people come to the dermatologist to do that, but others will think, well, I'll just do it at home. So it's the, the reporter was kind of going through the different type of modalities. And I was just kind of like, no, 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 yeah, don't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> so first thing was like, well, these are at home treatments, right? So what about cutting it off at home? Like, no, that sounds like a terrible idea. One, what if you get infected? What if you are cutting off the wrong thing? What if it's not a skin tag, right? Right. Not a good idea. They asked about tying it off. Maybe that works most times, but we do see the failed ones in clinic. And when you see a failed tied off skin tag, you're just like, oh my gosh, don't ever, then just become like super hyper and make it. Yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good look. The cryotherapy at home, it just doesn't get as cold. We don't want it to get as cold as what cryotherapy does in the clinic, the liquid nitrogen. So I think those just don't work as well. The good thing is they're not really causing as much damage. They shouldn't be unless you never know we can get on online anymore. But um, the things that are kind of in normal pharmacies shouldn't get that cold to cause to cause damage. Then there's all sorts of fun stuff out there. And the fact that the reporter was bringing it up, I mean, these are things people are doing. Because these reporters really just report on hot topic things that people are doing. So sometimes it's actually kind of fun to do these types of interviews to get an idea of what people are using that we might not know because they might not necessarily ask their dermatologist. But she was bringing up things like apple cider, nail polish, um, raw garlic, banana peel, like all sorts of stuff. Like how would the banana peel work? Like you just rub it on there? Do you leave it on there? Like, what are the logistics of the banana peel application? Because the banana peel. And like, I, 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 I've forgotten to do it since, but I think I need to do a deep dive on the banana peel skin tag thing. Maybe there's something there I'm not getting. If it's been Maybe. propagated over years, there must be some truth to it. I don't know. Cash me walking around with a banana like on my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. So really fun one. That was a really fun one, too. Yes. So those are some of our main hot topics in beauty and some targeted skin concerns. And one of the other biggies this year, of course, is tech. This is your area of expertise. 
So if you want, we can dive right into chatting a little bit about Derm GPT, which has been so huge and so interesting um, for me to learn about. So I'd love to hear your take on what's been going on this year. Yeah, so Derm GPT, I think, was one of the coolest things that happened this year, if I say so myself. And we did the um, initial inauguration of the beta test group in, we started the SF Derm symposium in august we had our media panel that kicked everything off it has been so fun ever since that we've had so many dermatologists join they're messaging me with like different use cases of how they're using it so derm gpt is a basically a language-based ai tool it is learned on dermatology data so the answers it gives is a little bit more specific and more correct for you know, the dermatologist but so many dermatologists have been using it. They're sending me cases of how they're using it, the prompts they're using. So it's forming a really cool community. And I think probably the subset of doctors that are kind of hopping on are probably the more, you know, ones that like the, the concept of things that are coming up in the future and like tech and are just kind of an innovative group. So it's been really fun to, to kind of interact with those colleagues across um um, actually, there's some from other countries too. I don't know how DermGPT got that big, but we have dermatologists awesome. even across uh, in other countries who messaged me, which is like really, really awesome. So it's kind of fun to see how those things are um, are doing. But yeah, DermGPT has been super fun. It's just the beginning of it. So super excited to see how far we can take it and just uh, all the use cases that we're coming up with just yeah. to make dermatology life a little bit easier in, in clinic. I'm really, really excited to see really what DermTPD does and really the trend of AI and dermatology, especially, you know, as I approach a future in this field, I'm excited to see how all interact with the technology. So I'm grateful to get early exposure to the interface and learn how to, you know, adopt it into my day to day so we can work hand in hand to make, you know, clinicians lives better and patients, of course, you know. Um, speaking of AI, um, there is an article in Medical News Today about radiologists and their interactions with AI. Um, and then you had a comment on that, too. It's interesting because when I had first really heard about AI in medicine, I had learned about it in the context of radiology. So it was interesting hearing that and then the conversations surrounding AI and dermatology, too. So I don't know if you want to comment a little bit more about what was discussed in the article yeah, I, sh I would say this is kind of one of my most favorite type of articles because, of course, we like skin tags and we like cleansers, which are the common things that we're asked about. When we're asked about something like this, which really targets like a specific niche of mine, it's just so refreshing, really, to to get to kind of talk about um, that specific field. The, this was a really cool study, actually. So this was out of, I think it's maybe out of Denmark, and I find the European countries are leading a bit in this in health tech and dermatology tech and radiology tech and AI. I think they're kind of leading the field um, a little bit. So I think we'll probably see that trend that more and more uh, studies might come out of out of European countries. But this was really cool. They basically had 72 radiologists look at various x-rays and then they had four different radiology AI platforms kind of cross compete. And what they noticed was the AI was pretty pretty good at picking things up. So like a pneumothorax, coral fusion, just different kind of sets of findings on x-rays. So it was good at finding things, but then it was also picking up too much. So it had a lot of false positives compared to um, 
compared to the attending radiologist. So when I kind of looked at this data, I think it, it was the AI was kind of performing maybe like a medical student, whereas the radiologist was performing at the level of like an attending physician. So it wasn't doing a bad job, but it just was kind of like overcalling things. When it came to the nitty gritty, it just kind of didn't have that wisdom yet, which will come, I think, with AI and more like learned um, data and more learning that happens. The other piece I talked to the reporter um, uh, about is that as physicians, we have all the rest of the data, right? We can look into the patient chart. We can get all the other metrics to kind of put it together and make that kind of clinical image path diagnosis and correlation. The AI is just kind of going off this one data point. So I think if they're going to make good AI um, in the future that can somehow mimic some of this, and it'll never, of course, entirely do what the humans can do. It's always going to be just an assist role. But when if they make a good one, and kind of they need to incorporate all the other pieces that uh, that a physician would be would have access to, in addition to just having the image. But yeah, it's really cool that this this type of thing is out there. I don't think it's going to replace radiologists. It's not going to replace pathologists. Um, it's, but as a as an assist role, it can really help. So really, really cool that's trials. And hear. I love that physicians did that trial, actually. Yeah, that's great. I like your point about physicians doing the trial, too, because you've mentioned before, you know, the importance of clinicians being involved, like heavily involved in the development of the technology, because the physicians are the ones that are going to be using the technology, too. Um, speaking of really cool technology... So we were talking a little bit about this earlier, how we are really excited to learn more about the 3D hair follicle printing article that came out, which is like the coolest concept that I've read recently. It's so amazing. So 3D skin printing, hair follicle printing, and this group is able to create like a hair follicle. I think this type of technology is going to be just like crazy for the for just the field of dermatology yeah. for wound healing testing cosmeceuticals i mean anything like i feel like it's it's all it's kind of like ai where the use cases are limitless like once you start doing this type of work um i think this is, we're embarking really on a whole new field i think things are going to change so quickly um over the like by the time you have completed residency i think there's going to be so many crazy new things out there so this oh, year a lot wait. happened a lot happened that is insanely cool especially from the aspect of like testing products and being able to potentially test on really this model as opposed to a person or an animal so i i like that um that side of it so um transitioning on from tech we have a few other articles to discuss about really ways and questions that um patients can ask to promote their skin health and really decrease their morbidity and mortality from various skin conditions. So the first one that really caught my eye because I had really one of my favorite celebrities ever mentioned, Kesha, queen, throwback, love her music. <laughs> and this article was all about the way that she discovered her autoimmune condition, which was super cool. So I would love to get your take on this Brit & Co article too. This one's really cool. Because yeah, I love Kesha too. So, and I, right. I treat a lot of autoimmune disease as well. So I was like, okay, so this is, I'm done now. Mic drop. I've talked about Kesha and autoimmune diseases, all like two things that you yes. would not think. 
you would be able to report on at the same time. Uh, but she basically just had uh, symptoms for a long time, which is not uncommon for patients with autoimmune disease, where uh, especially if they're young and they look healthy and so that things might not get picked up. There is this, I won't even go into this whole other thing, but some I don't know if this was any part of it, but sometimes women are also just underdiagnosed or later to diagnosis as well. So there's all sorts of things that go into it. But autoimmune disease sometimes can be picked up late. On the other hand of it, I, I would say when you have an article like this and it says signs to look for for autoimmune disease, I think there's signs that everyone can relate to, like fatigue and you know, like the different things that might get people worried unnecessarily and they don't have an autoimmune disease. So it's sort of these pieces are really good mm-hmm. to get education out there and awareness. But then I do think they probably scare people a little bit, too. But this was a really fun one just just to do. And, um, and for the few you know people, if they if this reaches them and they're like, wait, I am having those symptoms and go get checked out and do find out what they have, then it's kind of it's really worth it putting out pieces like this um, in places where mm-hmm. people are reading them. I think these are, that's the main thing with, with these. Sometimes there's the more lighter topics that we do in these kind of larger magazines and larger syndicates. But I think the main thing is they just, they reach a lot of people. So I'm really happy when every once in a while they touch on like a serious medical condition, a serious derm condition. I bet it was. It definitely caught my eye. But I love what you just brought up about the concept of really raising awareness so patients can be their own advocates too. I think it's great for patients to have that awareness about their body and know when to seek out medical advice from the medical professional just to make sure that they get treatment if they need it. So in terms of other really serious conditions, much like autoimmune conditions that have implications to quality of life or even the length of your life, melanoma, it's the biggie. It's the one that we learn about in medical school, even if we're not going to go into dermatology. But it's not always at the forefront of individuals' mind. You know, sometimes they're like, well, maybe I don't have a lot of sun exposure or maybe no one in my family has had it. So there's still a need to keep an eye out for melanoma um, despite your background. So there was an article written in Medical News Today about melanoma in skin of color, which is a super important topic. And you had a quote in there too, but I would love to hear more about your advice for individuals with skin of color in regards to their risk for melanoma or skin cancer in general? Yeah, I think our um, our knowledge of skin of color, how it pertains to dermatology, has really changed. Even, I would say, even since I finished residency and how different things can look different, um, inflammatory diseases can look different, but then also skin cancers can look different. They might not be picked up early. Like you mentioned, two patients might not even be thinking about it because they don't think they're the right demographic. Um, like we talked about patient education, patient advocacy. Maybe there's not all these like articles out there targeting a certain subtype and saying, hey, look at your skin versus they're maybe targeting a different subtype, maybe with lighter skin saying, hey, look at your skin, use the SPF, use the makeup with the SPF, this is for you. But, you know, not necessarily really targeting certain other subsets who are just as much risk. A little bit worse, too, because in this article, we talked about how there's a delay in diagnosis. So if you have melanoma and it's caught pretty early, it's actually not too bad. I mean, nobody wants to be diagnosed with melanoma, but if caught early, very treatable. If caught later, it's a whole other story. It can spread to other parts of your body, um, can cause mortality. Um, So basically, if you're catching it later, you're really doing a disservice to that population by not having that education piece out there. So pieces like this, I think, are so important. 
because they're attempting to kind of close that gap of knowledge and um, that kind of widely disseminated news article. Like some articles you see and you're like, oh, I've seen that before. Other ones like this you see and you're like, I haven't seen a lot of this before. So which which kind of just shows there needs to be more more about these things out there. The other part we talked about with the reporter too, it's, it's actually important to note that we don't know a whole lot about necessarily maybe the genetics um, or differences in melanoma and maybe skin of color because overall, out of all the melanomas, it still is the minority of the melanomas just by sheer number, um, even though they're diagnosed later and have, have maybe worse outcomes. But if you don't have enough of like uh, a subset, you can't do as much trials on them and studies on them and molecular testing on them as maybe the other melanomas that have maybe come from a, a different type of population or the Fitzpatrick 1 and 2 population. So I don't know if they necessarily know are there genetic differences other different um, precursors. So I think we have like a really clear idea of what melanoma looks like in a lighter skin color. I don't know if you know the whole story in skin of color. And some of that is just kind of gaps in knowledge. Of course, where science usually goes is if you have a larger data set, that's what you're going to study. So so lots of different things, but I think a lot of it is changing over time as well. We're learning a lot more in dermatology about about all various conditions. Absolutely. And I think it's great, as you mentioned, to be able to speak to reporters and get information out there to everyone who is looking on social media and reading from these various syndicates, because I know I'm a reader as well. Love, you know, Huffington Post and Pop Sugar. And like I already told you, I had already seen one of the articles that you had a comment on before I even knew that it was actually you who had written on it. But you know, there's a lot of questions that people maybe don't know that they need to ask a dermatologist, or maybe there's even questions that they're embarrassed about asking. And that really ties into one of the articles that we were discussing a bit earlier offline, but 13 reasons your butt might be itchy, according to experts. I feel like I would be embarrassed asking that question, but I think it's a great article. So fun. No, this is like, I think the if we were to rate our articles tonight, this is the number one article of the day. Reasons why you might have an itchy butt. <laughs> and this was so popular. So many people viewed this article. I, had, I got so many comments on it. And I literally had a friend from like high school that I haven't seen in years message me. It was like, I'm glad you're like, you know, reaching your dreams and accomplishing everything you've wanted to. <laughs> Yes, because it's something you can actually kind of it's, it's you 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 get a chuckle about a bit with the um, but the funny thing is though it's it's really really common, um, and there's so many reasons for it. Um, the most common is usually things like irritant dermatitis, um, contact dermatitis to wipes. Wipes are becoming so commonly used. I don't think that was a thing back in the day, but these kind of commercial mm -hmm. wipes. There's some called like dude wipes. So like, no, they sound yeah. cool. So men are like, oh, yeah, I should be using that. But um, <laughs> so they can have allergens in them. And I don't mean to attack dude wipes. But there's other wipes out there. But the wipes can cause issues, habits, not showering right after exercising, all sorts of different things that can cause contact dermatitis, irritant dermatitis, and that kind of multifactorial type of intertrigo that then can get yeast in the mix and all sorts of things. Then you can have, I always say, you know, patients that come in and they complain about that, it's really important to look, even though it's probably awkward for, you know, for the patient, but you really just need to look, feel free to even get a chaperone in the room, whatever makes the situation more comfortable. 
you really need to look because sometimes you look at the skin and you find okay they have psoriasis they have lichen sclerosis maybe sometimes even a neoplasm um so it's really important to actually look at the skin rather than it's because there's different conditions where i feel like you know patients are leaving out the door and they're like what about my hair what about my skincare routine but that, that's another one that people will be there for some other reason because they're too embarrassed to make an appointment just specifically for this and they're on the way out and they're like tips for like just having a little bit of itching around the perianal area any tips you know before i just open the door and leave and you're kind of like okay no we're gonna have to look you know because there's you <laughs> Let's just unpack our this. cases you have to look exactly because it can be multifactorial if you look at the skin you don't see anything you're probably dealing with an irritant um you can have neural sensitization kind of nerve related issues i usually will culture too just to see if there's any groupie strep sometimes that helps sometimes you find groupie strep treat it and that doesn't help but for the trial just try it. treating with a little bit of um, yeast is always worth worthwhile doing. Uh, and then rarely people will, if they've had traveled or um, come into contact with anything else, you could have parasites as well. More rare here, but possible. You just never know the history. And sometimes we don't get that full history of where people have been, what types of food they've eaten, things like that. So worst case scenario, I think I always or just order um, that stool test as well, just to make sure that we're not missing anything. So interesting. But yeah, also another pearls. popular one. Yes. And I'm so happy that we're ending on such a high note with that very popular article. Ending on a high note. But, but we would be remiss if we didn't chat about SF Derm. It's been a really big year for SF Derm in terms of the centennial celebration. And that's not the end of things. We've got plenty more events coming up. So I would love to hear more about what you're excited for in the coming year and how amazing it's been this past year. Yeah, the San Francisco Dermatological Society is such a wonderful community. We just all love each other, learn from one another, and it's been around for more than 100 years now. So we're sort of part of history. This year, though, I do think we kind of elevated to a whole new level. <laughs> we had this really, really cool conference in Napa, and it was so fun. We learned so much. We launched our podcast. Future Dermatology was born there. So that that's where it all started when five years and we're talking about, you know, our like five year anniversary podcast episode. It all started at the SFDERM um, symposium. It was the first year doing it in that large sort of um, way. So we did cap the number of people that attended and I think a lot more wanted to come. This year, though, we're at a bigger venue. We're in San Francisco, and Dr. Gru, he's uh, reserved the Marriott Marquis in San Francisco. You know the dates actually better than I do, Chandler. If you want to go do a plug, quick shout-out plug for next summer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is going to be in July of 2024. It's a weekend event. It's the 26th through the 28th. So we hope everyone comes out. It's really going to be an amazing opportunity to bring world-renowned, nationally recognized dermatologists who are leaders in the field together to talk about a wide variety of topics from cosmetic dermatology to medical dermatology. So we're going to have something really for everyone, and it's going to be a great time to network, hang out with old friends, your colleagues, and meet new friends and colleagues, learn a lot. So I'm really excited. I'll be there. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And then this is going to be open to, it's national now. It's open to everyone. It's a pretty large venue. So it's going to be really, really fun. Uh, but I think we'll take it even to the next level, even past last year's. So 
so excited Absolutely. super but excited for that can we can we top the kids club at this past event we <laughs> had a kids club we actually need to do we need to do an entire whole podcast about the kids club that was so cool we had kids club for the kids of the attendees it was so popular it was so fun the kids loved it the children of the dermatologists met each other and so it's like how cool is that if every year they can do that and come to these conferences and kind of like grow up together as a cohort because um, there's like a niche group that can relate to one another. Like if your mom is just in yeah. there picking at your skin, you know, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many cute it's, it's derm a special babies that I've seen. Subgroup. Lots of cute derm babies. Love. And they all have the matching love, shirt. Love, love. So we're still, the, the kids club is happening again too. Perfect. Love to hear the it. The kids club. Absolutely. Well, this Always. was so much fun, Chandler. I'm so glad we did this. It's fun 2023 wrap up. And soon we're going to be in 2024. A lot more fun things to look forward to with future dermatology as we're growing more and more. Um, so it's been really, really great. It's been so fun. One of the other things to look forward to is I know one of the next individuals you're going to be interviewing is my mentor, my PI, Dr. Tina Butani. So I'm yes, excited to Dr. hear Dr. Butani's uh, podcast is going to come out soon too. And we're going to be doing something really cool with Dr. Butani. We have a few like really mechanism of action theme talks coming out because they find there's not a lot out there on like really nitty-gritty of how our medications work we have the superficial mechanisms but not like the super nitty-gritty she has kindly bravely agreed to take that on and talk to me about different mechanisms different therapies too and we're going to do an episode just talking to her and her life and her journey so super excited Perfect. I'll be on the lookout for that. But it's been so much fun chatting with you. We'll have to do this again. We'll have to do this one again. We'll do the 2024 wrap up before we know it. Yes, <laughs> very well, thank soon. you guys for joining <laughs> us again on the Future of Dermatology podcast. <laughs> <laughs>